So we are week two of our Advent series, uh, Heavenly Hope in a Heavy World. You remember Mark last week talking about that heavy world um, in which we live today and which uh, the Christmas story uh, takes place. And so this morning, um, find my clicker. This morning, we're thinking of a ray of hope. I want us to think about, uh, with our subject this morning is a ray of hope. And I just want to start by asking the question, where do you find hope? Not what you hope in, but where do you find hope? What brings you hope? Is it a place? Is it a family? Is it, you know, the TV, the news? Probably not, but where is it that you find hope? Mark reminded us last week that this is a dark world and we are broken people. It can be hard sometimes for us to find hope. Move to the next slide. The people of Israel in the time of Jeremiah were facing that sort of dark time uh, <clears throat> when Jeremiah spoke these words that uh, we have up here and we had read to us this morning. The Babylonians had already conquered Jerusalem by the time Jeremiah writes this. They had installed a puppet king. And things were not going at all well. And it would not be very much longer before Israel, Judah, should I say, to be more precise, rose up in rebellion, bringing the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and going into exile. And in that darkening gloom, God brings this ray of hope through his prophet, the promise of a new start under a righteous ruler, a promise of justice and safety. This morning we are I'm going to be thinking about this promise and uh, its impact and the context in which we have the story of Zechariah from Luke 1. We're going to be doing this in four very different ways. And so rather than talking about points or so this morning, I felt that these are more like movements in a symphony that hopefully together will uh, bring beautiful things to us. So we're going to be considering that waiting for fulfillment of trying to bring fulfillment of what happens when hope dies and then finally finding hope in God. And along the way we're going to have time to reflect on how and where we find or lose hope. 
Our first movement, how long, O Lord, waiting for fulfillment. So I want us to think about the history between Jeremiah's prophecy and Zechariah's song. It's not an area we often delve into in church. But would you believe it's 600 years between Jeremiah and Zechariah? Jeremiah wrote the prophecy probably around 600 BC. Nebuchadnezzar had already conquered Jerusalem the first time in 607. And Jerusalem would fall in 587 BC. Judah would go into Babylonian exile. And they would be there for decades. But in 536 BC, a new king arises. The Babylonian Empire falls to the Persians. And Cyrus I, king of Persia, decrees that everyone can go back to their homelands, and particularly Israel can return. You remember Jeremiah's prophecy began with this call that God would gather his remnant from all the, play, all the countries to which they'd been scattered. And so, as an Israelite in 536, suddenly it looks as though the time has come for God's promise to be fulfilled. They are allowed to return. And return they do. And they start to build, rebuild the temple. But it doesn't come very, they don't get very far. Very rapidly, they are stopped in their tracks. And it's not until 520 BC, 14 years later, that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they challenge and encourage the people to start, restart, restart the rebuilding. And the temple is finished in 516 BC. Surely now God will fulfill his promise and send this righteous king that he has promised for Israel. Well, in 457 BC, more people return from Babylon, led by Ezra. And Ezra restores obedience to the Torah. The Israelites had been, shall we say, fairly lackluster over following the law. And Ezra restores that obedience. And then 10 years later, Nehemiah comes and he, re get, um, excuse me, he instigates the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And against all the opposition, they complete the walls. And now Jerusalem is once again a fortified city. It has a temple. And once again, Nehemiah stirs up the people to obedience to the law of God. Surely now, this must be the time when this new ruler 
this descendant of David will take the throne. But no, Persian rule continues. Malachi, the prophet, he writes in 397 BC. He once again talks of this promise of a future king. And he is the last of the prophets in the Old Testament. 397 BC. But still, Persia rules. And then there is a huge upheaval. Alexander the Great bursts out of Macedonia, rushes across all of Persian territory, conquering as he goes. He conquers Jerusalem. There is a huge sea change in the ancient world. But, but the kingdom of Israel is still under foreign occupation. It's just a change of oppressor. You move from the Persians to the Macedonians and then to the Ptolemies, who are the Greek rulers of Egypt. And this carries on. A lot of Greek influence comes into Israel. And at 200 BC, thereabouts, there's another change, but it's another change of empire. The Seleucids, who occupy the area of Babylon and Persia, they defeat uh, the, the Egyptians, and they take over the area of Judah. And they continue to rule over Judah until around 147 BC, when finally the Maccabee brothers rise up, or <laughs> encourage Israel to rise up, and they go into rebellion against this crumbling empire of the Seleucids, which finally gives way in about 140 BC. Judah is given semi-autonomy, semi-independence within the empire, and gradually, as that empire dwindles, they finally have full independence, and surely now this is when God will send his Messiah. But instead of a king of the line of David, we have kings who were from the priestly families of Israel. And from about 140 to 37 BC, this Hasmonean kingdom of Israel is there in various levels of strength. But in 63 BC, Rome arrives and Pompey conquers Jerusalem. He allows the Hasmoneans to continue until about 37 BC when Rome decides they've had enough and they appoint Herod, so-called Herod the Great. And Israel has a king, but Herod is from Edom, 
not Israel. So by the time we come to Zechariah, Israel has been waiting nearly 600 years for that promise made through Jeremiah. And so, the question I want us to reflect on just for a moment, I want you to reflect on, is how long will you wait in hope for a promise that God has made or for a prayer that you've asked? How long will you wait for God to act? So that was our first movement. Our second movement, if we've gone through history, now let's think we're going to be socio-political. How's that? The question, what can I do for this deferred hope? Trying to bring fulfillment. I want to consider the four main factions that are present in Israel at Zechariah's time. We won't take very long on any of them, and uh, let's see how we go. So can we have the first slide? Thank you. So the Pharisees, this was the, great, the largest faction in uh, Zechariah's time and in Jesus' time. The Pharisees are a very interesting group of people, somewhat maligned, if you like, within the gospel. Um, they were very earnest in their pursuit of God. They had, they had looked, if you like, at uh, this delay in God's fulfillment of sending a Messiah, and they said, well, why would God delay so long? The reason they settled on was quite simple. They looked around at the people of Israel and said, we are not obeying God enough. We've allowed all this Greek influence in. We've allowed, you know, we, we're sort of so lackadaisical in our following of Torah. Maybe, maybe God is waiting for us to do the right thing. Maybe if we adhere to all the law and to all the things that, that all the traditions that the wise of Israel have, have developed from the law, maybe if we do that, then maybe Israel will be good enough for the Messiah to come. So that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to make Israel good enough. How could we apply this to ourselves today? It's a little bit tricky, but what about our hope in institutions? The way that we look to our politics, the way we look to our social programs. We say, maybe... Maybe if we make these good enough, maybe then as a country or as a city or as a group, we will have peace, we will have safety. 
The next slide, please. The next group we also know from the Bible, the Sadducees. They're often lumped together in the Gospels, but the Sadducees are really a very different group of people to the Pharisees. The Sadducees are largely made up of uh, aristocratic priestly families who did very well in the Hasmonean period and do very well under the rule of Rome. Theologically, they only hold to the first five books of the Bible. Now, that sounds like they're even stricter, in a sense, than the Pharisees. We don't want to have all this other stuff that's accumulated. But in fact, it makes life a lot easier for them. They don't have to worry about a promise. They don't worry about the prophets, what God has said and done outside of the law. They can interpret it as they choose. And by and large, they have chosen to be, to interpret it in a very secular fashion. Their hope is not in a Messiah. Their hope is in a continuation of a status quo. And how many of us today are actually quite comfortable how we are? Yes, of course, we want to see God move. But, you know, we're in no hurry. Our hope is in material security. We don't want to rock the boat. Our third group are the Essenes. We don't find these in the gospel. Much smaller faction within Israel, and we know less about them from other sources. But what we do know is that they were, as far as we can tell, very keen on the law, on routines of prayer and study, and of cleanliness. And this desire for cleanliness means they separate from anything and anyone that is not completely clean. So if you want a comparison, think of the uh, medieval monks, communities, closed communities of monks, observing a routine of prayer and study. Where is their hope placed? Well, they've given up on Israel. Their hope is in a remnant of true Israelites who have joined them inside the wall of their community, as it were. Their hope is in personal piety, just waiting in the gloom for God to come and take them. We need to move on in our fourth group. We do have one character in the New Testament, Simon the Zealot. It's about all we know of him is his name. But the Zealots were, once again, a very different group, small faction, but they had decided that God needed 
a hand materially to bring about the kingdom. And so they entered into violent resistance of Roman rule if they were able to push the Romans out, then surely God, that would create the space for God to send the Messiah. And sadly, we can apply this, I think, to ourselves as well. For sometimes, what we hope for seems more important than how we get it. The ends sometimes seem to justify whatever means we feel necessary to complete that hope. And so we come just again to our reflection. How has your hope shifted as you've waited for its fulfillment? Have you been one to try and help it along by one means or another? Or are you waiting patiently for God? Let's come to our third movement. And I got sort of stuck for a spiritual title for this movement. And uh, I didn't get a laugh, so obviously no one knows where this came from. This is actually Pink Floyd, The Wall. And it just got stuck in my head. I couldn't actually think of anything else. I have become comfortably numb. It seems very appropriate to our next section. Let's turn to Zechariah himself. Luke tells us a little bit about him. He hints, I think, at some more. But this morning I want to take us a little deeper into his experience. So, if you'll permit me, there may be some artistic license involved as I tell his story. Let's see how Mark, uh, sorry, Luke, how Luke introduces him. Here we are. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. They are a righteous couple. They are a couple who observes Torah. They live blamelessly before God. We might guess that Zechariah belongs to the Pharisees. But what is it that defines their life? What is it that Luke tells us? They are childless. They have desired, they've hoped for, they've prayed for a child. Like most Israelites, no doubt, they hoped for a son who would do great things for God. But after their marriage, the months have gone by, and then the years, 
and then the decades. And there is no child. And with the passage of time, hope has faded. At the start of our story, Luke tells us that they are very old. Zechariah, the word, the name, actually means the Lord remembers. But the name now feels more like a cruel joke. The Lord has not remembered. There is no child. And now the hope is gone. Zechariah, I think, has also lost another hope. If we compare with Luke's description of Simeon in chapter 2, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. Simeon and Zechariah are, are, are really quite similar. They're both righteous and devout, and probably both pretty old. But Simeon waits for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the fulfillment of that promise of the Messiah. But Zechariah, Zechariah, he's childless. As Zechariah's hopes for a child have faded, so have his hopes in God's promises also faded. He serves diligently. He serves God diligently. But it seems maybe without the heart that he once had. Move on with our story. Now, I won't read this for time, but Zechariah's division of the priesthood has been chosen for duty in the temple, and he has been chosen by lot. There were so many priests in this time that this is probably his one and only time where he will serve in the temple burning the incense. There are many other tasks to be done, but this is the one time when he gets to go into the holy place to burn the incense. Here is Zechariah. He's standing in one of the holiest places in the temple, somewhere that God has promised he will be present in a very special way. He is burning incense, which is symbolic of the prayers of God's people ascending to heaven. There are probably hundreds of people outside lifting up prayers to God Almighty, calling on God to answer the cries of his people, to come down and establish his kingdom, to send his Messiah to save Israel from their enemies, but... Zechariah, though he performs the ritual, I don't think he is praying. 
his prayers have been unanswered for so long. They have all been said. And there is nothing left. Maybe some of us are in that place today. And then an angel appeared. An angel standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Imagine the scene. If you are Zechariah, you are standing at this altar, which is probably no bigger than this table here. And there is a little sort of hot thing <laughs> on there that you're burning the incense on. The clouds of smoke are rising so that it can be seen from outside. And suddenly, to your right, no more than a few feet away, is this angel. We don't know what Gabriel looked like. Well, he still looks like. But I think it was a pretty surprising and magnificent sight. Zechariah saw him. He was startled. He was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Sorry, your prayer has been heard. I'm rushing ahead. Your prayer has been heard. Well, wait a minute. I was saying just a moment ago that he is not praying. But his prayer has been heard. What does the angel say? Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. You see, it's not a prayer that he was saying as he burned the incense. It is the prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth repeated over and over for decades. It is the prayer that he has not dared to pray for years. It's the prayer that is too painful for him to voice now in his old age. It is the prayer that still echoes in the deepest reaches of his heart. It is that prayer. But there is more. This baby, this John, this miracle child, it's not just a long-delayed offspring. This son that he will have will be oh so very special. John is to be the herald who goes before the Messiah. He is the one who prepares God's people for the coming of the Lord. Like every good Jew, Zechariah would have prayed, would have hoped that God would bless them with a son who would be used to bring about his kingdom. And it is that prayer said a lifetime ago by a young man full of hopes and dreams. It is that prayer that has been heard and is now to be answered. 
And Zechariah, well, he's overjoyed. At last, his prayer has been answered. All of him, all prayers. Oh, oh, wait. No, that's the wrong story. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along with years. I love the way he, Luke at least tempers what he might have said, right? How can this be? This is not a question that, that Zechariah is asking of the angel. This is disdain and disbelief. Hope is not so easily rekindled after so many decades. Zechariah simply cannot accept what the angel is telling him. It may be phrased as an innocent question, but the angel is not fooled for one moment. The angel says to him, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. See, this is how we know that Zechariah had lost hope. The angel tells us so. He looks into Zechariah's heart and he knows Zechariah does not believe, even though an angel of God who lives in the presence of the Almighty, who now stands before him in the holy place, even though the angel tells him it is so. He cannot believe it. And so now he cannot say it, quite literally. And as we pause that point, let me ask you, if you have a hope that has been long in finding fulfillment, what would you say to the angel in that moment? Let's come to our fourth movement. A ray of hope, finding hope in God. As Mark reminded us last week, Zechariah's unbelief has earned him nine months of quiet time. Nine months to reflect on those old hopes and prayers. Nine months to ponder the angel's words and to look into scripture to consider the prophecies and the promises of God. And three months as a bonus, three months to consider Mary's words too. And slowly, but surely, God's message and the physical swelling of Elizabeth's body, they rekindle Zechariah's hope, not just for a child, but for God's promised redemption. And finally, after nine months, when his son is born and Zechariah is obedient to God's command to name him John, even though that name wasn't in his family, finally, he is 
free and ready to speak. And his renewed hope comes tumbling out in the hymn of praise that Matt read for us earlier. Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets long ago. If you look back to Jeremiah's prophecy and you compare it to Zechariah's song, there are so many familiar, so many sorry, similarities. I'm sure Zechariah had been reading it beforehand. And notice that Zechariah speaks as though the prophecy is already fulfilled. He talks in the past tense. His confidence in God is now sure. And one other thing. You notice that he talks about Abraham. Here is another old couple and a miracle child. How can he not but draw a parallel in his own experience? But Abraham tells us something more. For remember, if you remember back when we were doing our series on words and we thought about covenant, Abraham's promise from God was to be a blessing to the nations. The ray of hope that has burst into Zechariah's life, the long-promised fulfillment of the Messiah to come, that ray of hope of God's salvation is not just for Israel, but it is for the nations. And as we come to the end of our time, as we think, as we approach Christmas and we remember the incarnation, let's also remember that the time of Advent and the time of Christmas in the church calendar is not just for considering the story that happened 2,000 years ago. The key, a key part of our time is to remember that Jeremiah's prophecy is not yet fully fulfilled, that Christ is coming again, and only then shall we see that prophecy completed in the complete fulfillment. We are still a people who are in hope of that fulfillment. And so, like Zechariah, we should place our hope not in our strength or our abilities, not in our own righteousness, not in social programs and institutions, not in all that this world has to offer we should place our hope in God and his sure promises. And so we end as we began 
to reflect. Where do you find hope? Let's pray. Father, we often think of the gospel as something completed, something that has happened to us and that we are now done in our walk with you. But Lord, we recognize this morning that we are a people who still live in hope of your second coming and the fulfillment of all the promises. Lord, we live in this new kingdom where Jesus is king, but we look to the day when that will be here and complete. And Father, as we've thought about hope and as we've thought about waiting, Lord, we recognize that there are some of us who have been hoping for a very long time for something, who have been praying for a situation or a loved one or something, bringing it to you and yet have not seen an answer. And Lord, we pray that we are hope will continue in your true promises. Lord, give us strength for today. Give us hope for tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.